years ago, um, I heard a story of a, a man, a farmer up in Canada who was working on a manure spreader and the tines at the back were going around and they caught his coat and they pulled, it, pulled him into the tines of the manure spreader and all that bacteria, all that manure went into, uh, it ripped open his, his stomach. And uh, he not just, he not only lived, which they didn't think he would, he lived, but he recovered really fast. And so he became the subject of a study. They're trying to figure out why he recovered so fast. And this is what they concluded. He was a committed faster. He fasted every week. And what happened was, you know, just take him one day a week and call him that your fast day. What happened is this body then was then free to fight off all that bacteria. It wasn't fighting all kinds of other stuff. Cleans your blood. It, it, it strengthens your immune system. It, it, uh, it's a profound thing that God invented. And we've, most of us started fasting during this uh, first week of January. I just want to encourage you, let's keep at it. Let's watch and see what happens if, if it doesn't help us navigate some of the stuff that's going on in our, in our, uh, our world these days. And the other thing I want to make you aware of is uh, today is the beginning of a, a coaching series that I posted on our uh, School of Ministry. And it's, it's a coaching series on stress. And every day for the next 12 days, I'll be loading up, uploading, um, teaching on how to how to manage stress, practical things you can do uh, to reduce that. And if you want to go to www.penclark.study, you'll be able to see it there and uh, join in on that. And every day there'll be some, some new concept that I'll be presenting there for that. We're live streaming now, and there are people down in uh, Greenwood, Delaware watching. Hello, Greenwood. Hello, Jeremy and Cheryl and all our friends who are gathered in your living room. We love you and we bless you. We're glad you're with us today. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We started this message last Sunday, and this is part two. If you weren't here last Sunday and you'd like to find out how we began this study, uh, you can go to um, YouTube. Uh, to our Wellspring site, the channel that's there, and you can catch up on this important message. I met a, a missionary from Turkey, Mennonite guy who was working over there, and uh, we became fast friends and through the years. And uh, he even brought a, a Turkish believer to our church, our little church up in Lowville, and and we had a, a wonderful connection. And I remember sitting down with him one time, and I said, could I just go to Turkey and catch a bus and go to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea? Is it, is it possible that someone could just roam around Turkey? Is it safe? Is it doable? Can you do it? And he said, well, it'd be, it'd be hard. It'd be really hard to do. But I had this desire of just going and finding the seven churches of Asia and seeing what's there. And um, that never left me. And so I, it became a prayer. And I said, Lord, can I, can I go there? Would you let me go? Would you take me there? And I think it was 2007. Uh, I met this Russian guy. 
who invited me to Moldova, a little tiny country, poorest country in Asia. And uh, he and I were going to travel to Moldova, then on to the Ukraine. And when we looked at ticket prices, it was, it was really, really pricey to go to Moldova because nobody goes there. It's not on the way to anything. And uh, so when we prayed about it, I asked the Lord, I said, this is really uh, much, much more expensive than I could have imagined. And uh, what do you want me to do with it? And he said, go to Istanbul. So I, I looked up prices for Istanbul, and I could go to Istanbul, Turkey, and then make a short hop to Moldova for a third of the price. I mean, it was ridiculously low because Turkey was trying to get lots of tourists to come. And uh, so I told the Russian guy, I said, well, let's go to Istanbul. And I said, would you ever want to get out and just kind of roam around Turkey a little bit and look for those seven churches? And he liked that idea. And so he contacted our Moldovan uh, translator, and the Moldovan said, I found those seven churches. I know where they are. I've got them, I've got them all mapped out. And, and we said, could you get a car and drive us around? And he said he'd look into it. And so he, he was friends of the chief of police of Istanbul. Here he is as a Moldovan missionary. And he contacted him, and, and they agreed that he could rent his, uh, the chief of police's wife's car. And she said, just two rules. You can't smuggle any Bibles, and you can't have any drugs in the car. And he says, well, we, we can guarantee one of those rules, but not the other. And so because uh, he was a Bible smuggler. And, uh, and they knew that. And so, so next thing you know, I'm in, I'm in Turkey between a Moldovan who doesn't speak English and a Russian who doesn't speak Moldovan. And, and, and we're traveling around Turkey looking for the seven churches. And we got a, this before GPS, before the, maybe not, not before the internet, but there wasn't much for that. And, uh, and so we just got a big old map in the car, and we're driving, and we don't know where we're going to sleep. We don't know where we're going to eat, and we're just finding our way. And it was one of the best adventures of my life. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And uh, I can't tell you all about it, but we found five of the seven churches. Then we started running out of time and, and had to get back into our, our trip to go to Ukraine. It never left me. And so that missionary that we became friends, uh, he contacted me one time. He says, I'm taking a group of people around Turkey. We'll go to Patmos. We'll go to uh, Cyprus. We're, uh, there's lots of church history there. Would you want to go? And so uh, I hopped on that trip. Next thing you know, I got to see the seven churches and got to see so much more. And that was a wonderful life, life enriching experience. And I'm so grateful for it. Here's, here's uh, one thing I learned about these seven churches. Jesus told them to repent. Six of the seven churches, he called them to repent. They must have because um, a couple hundred years after he wrote these seven letters, uh, the government relaxed um, the rules on Christianity and allowed them to become legal, allowed them to come open. And the emperor uh, uh, built the first church building. Before this, they all met in homes. And um, all of a sudden, he built this big building called a basilica. It, it's, it looks like a granary. It looks like a big barn. And people would come in, they'd sit on the floor, and they'd do these columns, these pillars that held up. And they, you can still see in, in uh, Spain and, and a few other places, Italy, I've seen some of them in Italy, that, that look on, they're built on this model that Constantine had built. And so all over Turkey, 
Uh, there's more than seven churches. Uh, there are about nine that, of this period. Uh, they all built massive cathedral-style basilicas, huge, huge buildings. And so um, earthquakes have come uh, through the centuries and decimated these churches. Then it was, they were overrun by, by Islam. And so there isn't much of the way of Christianity. But in each one of each of these cities are the bones of these churches that show that there are massive buildings. In fact, at Ephesus, there's several of them. And John's buried there, Mary's buried there, and they built special churches to commemorate them. And, and you can see them. I mean, they're, they're just huge, huge arches, massive foundations, and you can see how it was all laid out. So it tells me that these seven letters worked, that the people who got them were so convicted by the Lord that they repented enough that they can get another few hundred years and build these major churches, major church buildings. And, uh, of course, there's not much there. There's a little, I remember being there a few years ago, and there was a little tiny um, church of evangelical believers just outside of Ephesus. But otherwise, there's not much in the way of Christianity um, in Turkey today. It, what's there is underground. So let's go to Sardis together. And uh, this is Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And to the angel, and the, the angel here is the messenger. It's not necessarily the pastor, but it's the leader of the church. Could be an apostle, could be a prophet. The angel of the church in Sardis, right? These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And that's, you can find out more about that in the very first chapter. He says, I know your works. And that you have a, a name or a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen those things which remain that are ready to die. For I, found, I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you do not, do not watch, I will come to upon you as a thief, You'll not know what hour I will come on, upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed with white, in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that has an ear... That I'm here with the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, so this church is a, uh, everyone would have talked about this church as being a, a revival church. They had an emphasis of life and a, it looked like a, a happening place. It looked like it was growing. It looked like it was busy. Lots of events, lots of stuff happening. It looked like it was alive and, and that was its reputation. But from Jesus' perspective, and that's really what matters, it doesn't matter what, how you project yourself and how you present yourself and the image that you cultivate. And people do that, and you see it on Facebook that they're cultivating an image. It doesn't matter what you project. What really matters is what Jesus sees, his opinion of you, his opinion of our church, our churches, or the life that we have. 
That's what matters. There's something about being current with God. It's possible to live on past reputation. It's possible to cul uh, cultivate a reputation. But you can't do that uh, for long and really sustain it. It's not sustainable. The best place to be is just to be honest to God. Be honest about your true condition, honest about where you're really at, honest about where you are now. And, um, but we all do it to some extent. We all do it in some area, and these people were doing it. They had a reputation for being alive, but Jesus said they were dead. He said, I've, I've not found your works perfect, and um, uh, because we're so grace-oriented, and most of us come out of a works background, works can take... Uh, uh, a bad rap, and so all, all of a sudden works becomes like a bad word. But now that you're saved, you're not saved by works, but now that you're saved, you're saved for works. Jesus is expecting you to do something. He's expecting you to accomplish something. He's expecting you to, to fall into uh, your purpose and to accomplish something. All the effort of, of getting you saved and getting you baptized in the Spirit and pouring all that grace and sitting in meetings where you get Bible knowledge after Bible knowledge and revelation and insight and we pour into you from every direction and you're consuming devotional books and you're watching videos, you're listening to podcasts, all that has to produce something. What's it for? Well, it's for works. And he says, I, 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 I see you're busy but you're not producing. There's works that are missing that Jesus was looking for. He's expecting. He's expecting something to happen. He said, now remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. And, and uh, most of my Christian life, you know, I've been in this thing for a while now. The funniest thing about what I do and how, I, how I'm trying to go forward in God the odd thing about it is I'm trying to do, I've spent quite a bit of my time thinking about and trying to, trying to get back to the things that caused me to grow in the first place. They're the things I'm trying to do now. It's not ironic that you get so far out there, you grow and you've been, you've been places and you've done things, but I'm trying to get back to the simplicity of how I heard and how I received. What caused me to grow in the first place is what will cause me to grow today. And he's telling them, look, you need to get back to that. How did you learn? How did you hear? How did you read? They didn't read very much, to, uh, apparently, but they did hear. So what caused you to grow in the first place? That's what you need to do today. Just as you were found in him, just as Jesus brought you to himself, how you experienced salvation? Well, for the rest of your life, you're going to have to be doing those very basic things that created salvation. Then how did you grow after you're saved? Well, for the rest of your life, you're going to be focused on doing the things that you did when you first met the Lord. It's key. It's a key. Hold fast. Repent. Therefore, if you do not watch, and he's expecting a, a certain vigilance on our part. He's expecting us to be alert. He says, I'll come upon you as a thief. Now, Jesus used that language before when he's talking about the whole world, that he's coming as a thief in the night, and no man knows the hour, that he's just all of a sudden he's going to come. That could happen tonight. I can't think of any reason why it couldn't happen tonight. Uh, when he comes, we'll be surprised at the hour when he comes. 
and he himself said, I'm going to come as a thief in the night. This is different. This is different. This is him coming to punish. This is him to come to, to deal with us. And he says, you're, it's, it's going to happen in a way you're not going to expect it. He said, but there are a few names, even in Sardis, who've not defiled their garments. Now, uh, uh, look around at each other here for a minute. Just look around. You can't see it, but you're clothed in garments. And if your body were to fall to the ground and you were standing in the spirit realm, you would be clothed with certain garments. Our bodies hide what's really going on in our spirits. You can't see a person's spirit. But once that body falls to the ground and it dies, who you are, what you are, your cumulative spiritual experience becomes obvious to everybody. For example, we sang today, show me your glory, I want your glory. When you go through hardships, and you embrace Jesus in the hardships, and you let him embrace you, what happens is, is a sense of glory, a sense of him, his light, his life, smears your heart. And the amazing thing is when you, when you go to heaven, people can see the glory on you. Some people are flatlined. Some people, there's no light. There's, there's no shine. There's nothing. They're there. They're in heaven. Praise God. They're in heaven. Then there's other people that are just radiant. They look like Jesus. They shine. And, and as you walk, walk by a polished golden column and you see yourself, one of the most surprising things that you see is that you'll be clothed with glory. And it comes from what you do here with Jesus, what you do in the hard times, what you do in worship, what you do, all of that stays with you. It's accumulated. That's why he said it's uh, the, the glory that we shall perceive of ourselves can't be compared to the hardships that we're going, with, going through down here. It's, there's no comparison. So we actually receive glory. Adam and Eve, I think, were clothed with glory. They were created with glory. And so when Adam and Eve first saw each other, they just looked like two balls of light. When they sinned, the first thing that happened is they saw that they could now see each other in a different way. Where that light was gone, the glory was gone, they lost that, and they, and they were ashamed, and they hid themselves, and they covered themselves. Who knows what you really look like? In fact, uh, what he's talking about here, he says there's a few names, names that are persons. There's a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. So it's possible that your spiritual garments can have stains and spots and wrinkles upon them that no one can see. You can't see my spots. I can't see your spots. But can you imagine living in secret sin, habitually, consistently living in, in, in secret sin where you know it's wrong and you keep doing it and you don't, you don't repent, you don't change, you don't receive cleansing. Can you imagine all of a sudden you're in the spirit realm, you, you've died, and people could see who you really are and what you're really about. It'd be like, be like a, a bridal gown with this great big grease stain going down the back side of it. And there's no cleansing for it. There's no way 
to deal with that. We deal with that now. We deal with that now by faith. And that's what he was saying. From Jesus' perspective, he's looking at the church, and he's saying there's a few people in Sardis who haven't defiled their garments, they haven't stained their garments. Whatever you do has an effect on your spiritual life. And someday it'll be obvious. It'll be, it'll be seen by all. This verse also helps me to realize so often we generalize churches and groups of people. Uh, we could say all those Mennonites, those Mennonites are this or that. You, you can't do that. Uh, or to say all Catholics are this way. You can't, do, you can't even say all Mormons are this way or that way. You can't say, oh, those wellspringers, those people at Wellspring, they're all this way. No, you can't, can't really say that. Uh, there are people at Sardis that were outstanding and, and living a separated life, sanctified, and, and the, then there were people who weren't, all within a church. In fact, in a church this size, there's everything. There's everything. And it's the generalization that gets us in trouble, and we need to see uh, how Jesus sees things. And he says, he that overcomes, he'll walk with me in white, and boy, we'll want that. Uh, and uh, he'll be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life. Now, what happens when you first meet the Lord, the first thing that happens that causes heaven to rejoice is this big book is unfurled, and, and your name is put in the book of life. And Paul wrote to some uh, Christians at Phili uh, Philippi, and he said, uh, uh, these, these people, their names are written in the book of life. He knew that. He knew that because he'd been to paradise. He, he knew the book. He knew what happened. So your name is actually written in heaven. And one day it'll be read, and everyone's name will be read, and they'll be straining to hear their name. They want their name in that book. That is everything. That is everything to have your name in the book. But he's saying, he's saying, I won't blot their name out. So what would happen is when you would work with ink on parchment, if you wanted, if you made a mistake, you're writing a, something on a scroll, and you made a mistake, you'd take a, a, a knife and you'd scrape away the ink, and then you'd take a, a damp cloth and you'd lift off that ink so you could write anew. You can write something again where you made the mistake. It's called blotting. There are Christians all over America that believe that once their name is put in the book of life, once they're born again, once they've prayed the prayer, they're home free, they're safe. They can do anything they want, they can live the way they want, and there's no consequence. Jesus didn't believe that. Jesus didn't believe that it was permanent. Jesus believed his doctrine is different than, than many of our doctrines. That, that says that now you're home free. I'm not home free. You're not home free. We're at risk. We're at risk. And, and it's possible to experience salvation and then do your own thing and live your own way and do whatever you want to do, thinking that you're secure, that you've got heaven made, your name's in the book of life, uh, you, you're home free. Jesus doesn't believe that. And that's not to make you insecure. And there are people who are unstable 
they need the assurance that their name is in the book of life. And as a pastor, I give that to them. I want them to feel safe. I want them to feel secure. Then there's Christians who do whatever they want. They live any way they want. And I've called them. I've talked to them. I've tried to reach out to them. And they, and, and they just do whatever they want to do, not realizing that their names actually could be removed from the book of life. That should make us shudder. That should make us live circumspectly. That should, that should cause us to think differently and live differently in this life. That's the intention behind this letter. And Jesus was warning a church, look at, I can take, I put your name in, I can take it out. And I don't want to do that. I want you to repent. I want it to stay there. I just want you to come up. I want you to live differently. I want you to choose differently. Isn't that a powerful word? You don't hear that preached very much. I've never heard it preached at all, but it's true. It's true. It's true because it's here. Jesus said it. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Having Jesus say your name in terms of a validation, uh, Jesus would stand about 18 inches in front of him. Our life is reviewed before Jesus in front of all of all of. All of everyone who's ever existed will be there. Our life is reviewed. Our, he's the judge. Our names are read from the book of life. Our life is revu reviewed before Jesus. And then there's this moment where he says, enter in. Enter into the joy of my father. And he, he moves his hand and he has us come forward. And for the first time, for the first time, you see Father God face to face in person. And Jesus is the one that brings you and he introduces you and he said, this is Benjamin, this is David, this is Holly. And he introduces us to the Father. You'll want that, you'll want that, you'll want that. The only way to get that, and the reason we need to know this is you have to overcome. We have to overcome the pull of this world. We have to overcome, the, we're all at risk. We're all in a war. There's an enemy that's trying to pull you back into the mire. And there's something that helps you to pull out is that vision of someday you being introduced to the Father and you see him. See, every bit of love that you've ever experienced, whether it's from your mother's eyes or from your father's smile or, or any kind of love you've ever experienced, from, from the, even the person who said, I love you and will you be mine, and all that love, even, the, even, even if you saw Jesus in a vision, that's reflected love. That's love that is coming from God through somebody, but for the first time, you'll see unreflected love. You'll see love direct, <laughs> love complete, and you'll never feel more loved in your life, and he'll enfold you with his love. It's worth living for. It's worth enduring for. Here's, I'll declare your name before my father and his angels. Let's go to chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. This is the church at Philadelphia. He said to the church at, in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. We sang that this morning. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. We often use this verse in terms of guidance. Lord, would you make 
would you open the door so I know it's you? Would you open the door, close the door so I know you don't want me to do that? Uh, that's not how this was intended, although that does work. It does apply. Uh, this is a quote from um, Isaiah 22, 22, I believe. This is a, he's referring to something that goes back in the Old Testament. I'm not sure what the key of David is, but it's authority and it's access to something that David was able to press into and come into, and he was granted a certain level of authority. And he's saying, I'll give this to you. I'll give, the, I'll give you access. I'll give you authority. And he says, uh, I know your works. Can you just let that little phrase slip down in your own heart for a minute? God knows you. Jesus knows you. He knows what you're doing. He knows your works. He knows. <laughs> take comfort from that. Take consolation from that. Or, or uh, the fear of God from that. The fear of God, my best definition that I've ever come up with or seen or you know, I collect things. And the best definition of the fear of God is that he knows, he sees, he hears. That should either comfort us or cause us to repent, but he sees, he knows. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door that no man can shut it. No one can shut it. For you have a little strength have kept my word and have not denied my name. They must have had opportunities to do that. You will have opportunities to do that as well. There'll be a pressure point at some point in time where you'll have a chance to deny the Lord. And you don't have to say it. You can actually do it. And uh, he said, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say there are Jews and who are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and Worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Uh, that's an interesting thing. In some of these churches that we found, we, we would go in these cities, and one of them, the backside of the church was the synagogue, and there must have been some tension with that. And if you can imagine, I mean, that's the biggest competition anywhere. And so they were blaspheming. We know that from another letter that Jesus wrote. There's tension There's tension between the synagogue of the Jews. He said they're not Jews. It's not a prejudice thing. Uh, uh, these are people who are living a lie. And um, he said, but here's what's going to happen. Someday they're going to recognize. They're going to recognize you for who you are. They're going to recognize what's in you. They're going to recognize that I love you. They're going to recognize that you're right. Have you ever been opposed? Have you ever been the one that you're the odd man out? Or you're, the, you're being accused of being a nut job? But you're the one that's saying, well, that cr flaky faith, that crazy stuff, and the way they're going is, is wrong. Well, there's this moment, a moment of reconciliation. And Jesus, rec Jesus promises this. There is time when, the, when they'll see reality. They'll see what you really are about, what you really have. That will happen. Our opposition is not the synagogue of Satan. Um, but it, it does happen to us today. Because you have kept my command to persevere, and, and this is what Jesus has given all of us, getting saved and having a good beginning is one thing. Going the distance, finishing well, that's the big tension of your life these days. That's the big tension of my life. 
it's not it's not starting it's finishing and he says i've i've commanded you to persevere stick with it keep going if you do this he says, i'll keep you in the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth there's a great tribulation coming and it, it will come, it's, it, and it's beyond. We're going to talk about it in the next few weeks in our small group. It's a, called the Great Tribulation. Jesus called it that. It's a great trial. It's a great stress. It's a, it's a, it's a mind-blowing kind of thing that's going to be happening. But before that happens, all the way through history, there's been small py- uh, um, periods of tribulation. Every culture, my grandparents, my parents, they went through times of tribulation. You can imagine, you know, I had uncles in, in World War II. They thought that was the end of the world. They thought Mussolini was the Antichrist. They thought Hitler had to be the Antichrist. Look at the power he had over people uh, to make them do mindless things. And, and, so, and, and I don't know how many popes they declared as to be an, the Antichrist, and Kennedy was the Antichrist. And, and, and there's all these little end-time scenarios. And for these people, there was a trial that was coming upon the whole earth, and he says, I'll keep you in it. I'll keep you in it. Um, It's come to test people, but I'll keep you from that hour of trial. Trials reveal who you are. Trials are necessary. Uh, Right now we're in the middle of a discipleship school and discipleship course. And uh, it's a nice little cocoon. It's so quiet. You're at the table. You're studying. You're exposed to the word of God and time of worship and time of of um, growing and time of being with friends and meeting new people. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Then, then you have to go home. <laughs> hey, then you have to go back to work in a few months. And you stop and you say, man, that re-entry is hard. In fact, YWAM have written, they've provided a whole book on how to re-enter because most people fail when it comes to re-entry because they don't survive it. They, they don't survive going home. They don't survive going back to normal. They've been in a bubble. They've been in this c- lovely little cocoon. I wish we could live in that cocoon forever, but it's not possible. You have to go back where someone gets on your case. You have to get back where there's opposition. You have to get back where stuff breaks and things don't go right, and, 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 and that, that peaceful bubble is just not there. That is a trial, and the reason for a trial, that we're, what makes a trial necessary, it reveals what God has done. And you can see how much you've grown. You can see how much you've changed. You can see how your desires are different than they were before. You need that test. It's an important thing. And uh, uh, there's a test coming. He's behold, I'm coming quickly. He says that many times. This is 2,000 years ago. So for him, it is still quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. One of the great rewards that you can look forward to are, are crowns. And you could say, well, I'd look silly in a crown. I don't want a crown. I don't like jewelry. I don't, I don't, I don't like all that. It's not the crown. It's it's whose it is, and 
who, uh, who gives it to you and the honor that's attached to it. It's, it's him, like there's a soul winner's crown, for example, for people who are constantly helping people find Jesus. And he wants to extend that. He wants to give that to you. And it's one of the most beautiful things you could ever possibly see. And there's crowns for different things. And Jesus is crowned with many crowns. But there's a moment. There's a moment where Jesus will set a crown on your head. And it's a crown in reward for what you did by faith here, now. And it's possible to so slacken and to back off and to, to uh, no longer be pressing and no longer be moving forward to coast and lose your crown. And someone else comes in and they persevere and they come in and they come into your ministry and they do what you're called to do and they get your crown. I mean, it's not, it's not the way it was intended to be. And, and there's a risk of that. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said it here. Most of you aren't thinking crowns. I never think crowns. I've been to the Tower of London where the, the Queen's jewelry is. I'm not interested in that. I'm, there's nothing there that I would wear. But it's crowns are a statement. Crowns, you know, they say a crowning achievement. There's a moment where crowns will become everything. And you'll be sitting there and you'll be watching people come forward and all of a sudden they'll be rewarded in front of everybody and they'll be given this and that and jobs and opportunities and, and uh, an entire life and proximity to Jesus and proximity to the Father and, and all kinds of rewards and, and you'll, you'll want it all. You'll want it all. And the way to get that, and this is the this is the thing that's interesting. You can you choose you choose whether you get that or not. You choose you choose by the choices you make here now, by faith. Giving a glass of water to someone who's in need, whether it's a phone call or or or, or reaching out to them and and it strengthens their heart. There's a reward for that. Being with someone who's struggling coaching them, encouraging them, walking with them, praying for them. There's a reward for that. And it's so far beyond the actual work that you're doing. It's, it's, it's so far beyond that. But it's possible to, to live and you've accumulated a, this enormous amount of uh, reward laid up. And it's possible to get into the final phases of the race and decide to sit it out, get offended at church, get decide to stay home and, and not not relate to the body and not relate to people who rub you the wrong way and, and, and not do any more service for the king and the sit it out. And next thing you know, all that's been laid up is lost. It's possible. I'm not thinking crowns, but I want Jesus to be proud of me. I want Jesus be proud of me. When I stand in front of him, I, I, wanna, I want him to smile at the revelation of my life and how I lived it and what I did and how I lived in secret and how I, how I prayed, how I, how I served him, the motives of my heart, motives for ministry. I want all of that to be to his praise and glory and honor. 
But it's funny, it's funny the number of times I've read, even recently, of, of men who've lived a whole life for the Lord. I can't name names, but if I could, it would, it would be impacting to realize that near the end of the life that they're being questioned about their morality and questioned about uh, their motives for ministry and, and their, their, the last days of their life, their conduct. And it's possible to lose everything that was laid up for them. It's possible. Jesus talked about that. He who overcomes, and that's the issue. All these promises, they're not for Christians, they're not for churchgoers, they're not for members, they're for overcomers. And that's the issue for you and for me. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. That's proximity. That's living close to Jesus. That's what you want. You know, there's this false humility. Man, man, I call it false humility. But, you know, there's an old song. I just want a little cabin in a, by a stream, you know, somewhere in heaven, just this little shack. You know, that's all I'm worthy of. But, but when you actually get to live close to Jesus or close to the Father and have easy access to the Father, it'll become everything. Proximity is everything. And then there are people who are, are living in outer darkness. They're living further and further away. And they're living there with regret. And that's what you don't want. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I'll write up on him my new name. And names, uh, names are huge. Names are who you are. And uh, to have a name given to you, and there's a promise of, of you getting a new name, but then you knowing Jesus' new name, and not everybody does. And to have him write on you, and it's not a tattoo, it's somehow an inscription in your very person, in your very character. And that's put in there, and that you're, you're a member of the New Jerusalem, you're a resident, you're part of that, and that's, that's somehow your past, so, somehow that's your access. You'll want it, you'll want it, you'll want it. And it's all decided down here. There's a, a tribe in uh, Venezuela, on the, quarter, the border of Venezuela and Colombia. And uh, this young 19-year-old American missionary got in among them, lived among them for about five years. And, and one of them came to know the Lord, and he led the rest of the tribe to the Lord. And, and as they're walking down the trail, this young boy and this young missionary, they're walking down the trail, all of a sudden they stop, and uh, the boy had this, uh, you know, uh, a, a look of terror on his face, and, and the missionary, his name is Bruce, Bruce thought maybe that the young boy, his name is Bobby, Bobby Show, that maybe he stepped on a thorn or something, barefoot on the trail, because he would look like he was in pain. But when he asked him about it, he said, no, he says, but my name, my name is in the heavens. He says, well, no, your name is Bobby Show. Everybody knows you're Bobby Show. He says, no, but when I, when I became a man, there's a ritual when you become, you know, from a young boy to a man that all the elders gather together and they come up with a new name, a secret name, a name that nobody knows. And they, they give you this name as a ritual of manhood. 
And then when they die, eventually, nobody knows your secret name. But if anyone finds out your secret name, they own you. You belong to them. It's like you become a slave to them. You're giving them power over your whole life. And so Bobby Show is actually giving his life to Bruce by revealing to him a secret name. He says, my name, my real name, the name that the elders gave me is in the heavens. Great moment, amazing moment. And Bruce never forgot that. And, and then Bobby Show led the whole tribe to Christ. And, and because they all came to tr Christ in one day, the whole tribe, you have to wonder, do they really mean it? Do they really know? Do they really understand what it is to follow Jesus? Do they, are they real believers? And so for a period of time, Bruce was working among them, but still not certain. Did that really take? Did that really happen? Could a whole tribe come to Christ in one night, one evening, one, one meeting? But he said he got among the old people, and he said there was this time he, he was visiting someone when they're on their deathbed. And he went in to pray with them and to be with them in the moment when they die. And he said, all of a sudden, this old man sat up bolt upright and his eyes wide open. And he says, he's calling me. He's calling me. But he's calling me by my secret name. Jesus was coming for him. But calling him by a name that nobody knows but him. And it was proof to Bruce that these people were really born again. They were really saved, that Jesus was coming for them and calling them by their secret name. You'll be working somewhere in heaven. You'll be busy doing some assigned task. And you'll hear your name called. And no one will know what it is. And you'll recognize who it is that's calling you. And it's your secret name. And you'll walk down one street and cross another and walk over a bridge and down a lane and through a park. And you'll come into a place it's so vast, and yet there's this throne, and him who's sitting on the throne will call you by your name and invite you to come and sit with him and sit beside him, and that moment will be everything, and he'll look at you and listen to you and talk with you face to face, completely open, completely revealed, and he'll do this Again and again and again and again, and, and that's how you'll spend forever. There'll be no more prayer. There'll be no more temple. There'll be no more church. There'll be no more worship by faith. When you want to sing to him and you want to express your heart to him, you can sit in his throne. You can sit down with him and talk with him completely open. It'll be, it'll be worth all the trials down here. It'll be worth all the efforts just for the access, just for the moment of being able to sit down beside him and have him look at you. And you'll be, f you'll, be, you'll be feeling waves of love like you've never felt before. It's worth everything to overcome. You'll want that privilege. Amen? I want him to write on me. I want him to write on me whatever he wants to write on me. I'm at risk. You're at risk. We're in a war. The battle's not over. We're not, we're not in heaven yet. Let's keep going. Let's be diligent to persevere. Amen? No matter what the enemy throws at you, no matter what tests come. And a test could come this week. Someone could lob something at you that hurts, that just makes you say, if that's church, if that's Christianity, I'm sitting out. I'm, I'm, I'm out of there. 
you will be tried. It will happen. There's no way that we can avoid it. But it reveals, it reveals what he's done inside of you. I want to be quick to forgive. I want to release it. I want to let it go. I want to say, that's that, but my eyes are on Jesus. I want him to be proud of me. Let's stand together. Close yourself in. The first thing you could do is, if you feel challenged, if you feel like he's reminded you of some important things today and it's the spirit getting through to you, why don't you thank him for that and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for helping me to see. Thank you for reminding me of these truths. Jesus, I'm not home free yet. There's pressure on me to give in. But Jesus, I want you to be proud of me. I want to stand before you and not be ashamed. I want to stand before you and not be afraid. I know you're coming back. I know you're coming back. And I want to be ready. And I want to give you glory and honor and praise. Now and forever. Lord, help me to make it. Help me to overcome. And <laughs> God, help me to help others to overcome. If I have to carry them, help me to help others. Help, help me, use me to help others run the race. Use me to remind people of the priorities. Use me, Father. Inspire, inspire people through me, through my mouth, my life, my witness, my life. Show me, Father, how to inspire others. I want to get as many people there as I can, Father. I thank you for these reminders from your word today. I bless you. In Jesus' name.